Hi, everyone. Welcome to Lost Ladies of Lit, the podcast dedicated to dusting off books by forgotten women writers. I'm Amy Helms. And I'm Kim Askew. Listeners, we are thrilled to tell you that this week's episode focuses on a long-forgotten Regency-era novel. It's the only one of its kind to have a racially conscious Black heroine at its center. In its day, the anonymous novel The Woman of Color, A Tale received three reviews in major contemporary journals. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but to put it in perspective, it's three more than Jane Austen's third novel, Mansfield Park, received when it was published just six years later. Right. And since Mansfield Park is noted for its subtext on slavery and colonialism, it's particularly interesting that this book we'll be discussing addresses it head on, and it was pretty much ignored for 200 years. The good news is there has been a recent outgrowth of scholarship on the woman of color, and fortunately for us, we have a guest on the show today who can tell us all about it. And for those Sanditon and Bridgerton fans out there, we're also going to touch on modern Regency-inspired adaptations with Black characters as well. This is going to be so great. So let's raid the stacks and get started. Today's guest, Dr. Lee Michael George, teaches in the English department at Geffen Academy at UCLA. She received her BA in art history from Georgian Court University, her MFA in screenwriting from the American Film Institute, and her PhD in English from UCLA. Her current book project, Regency Noir, Romance, Race, and the Rise of the Woman of Color, focuses on Regency romance narratives and 18th and 19th century studies scholarship that foregrounds Black women's lives. Welcome, Lee Michael. Thank you so much. Very excited to be on the show. So because The Woman of Color was published anonymously, I think we should talk about the book first, and then we can circle back to the question of authorship a little bit later in the discussion. So Lee Michael, would you care to give our listeners a quick overview of the plot without giving away too many spoilers? Okay, so The Woman of Color was published in 1808. And when the novel begins, the heroine Olivia Fairfield, who is a free woman of color, is setting sail from Jamaica to England. So her father, Mr. Fairfield, who is the owner of the Fairfield Plantation, has recently died. And he stipulated in his will that Olivia has to marry her English cousin, Augustus Merton. And if she doesn't marry him, then she is forfeiting the 60,000 pounds she would inherit. And so the novel begins with her sailing from Jamaica, where slavery exists, to England, where the slave trade has been abolished. And she has these expectations of England. She expects that she's going to, quote, meet people who are sensible, liberal, well-informed, and rational. But that is not what she finds. She's disappointed in England. And even when she meets her soon-to-be husband, Augustus, when he first meets her, he is disgusted by her skin color. Though after a few hours in Olivia's presence, he's suddenly mesmerized by her beauty and her mind. And he talks about her having a nobility of soul. And this idea of Olivia's nobility is contrasted with Olivia's sister-in-law, the vain, jealous Mrs. Merton, who doesn't like Olivia at all, who calls her racist slurs. And she's scheming to tear apart Augustus and Olivia's marriage. And that's a key plot point in the story. 
there's this real contrast between these two women. And the last thing I'll mention is that even though Olivia experiences all this racism, she has this great sense of pride in her African heritage. So her mother, who's an enslaved African woman who dies when Olivia is born, it's as if Olivia's nobility comes from her mother because her mother is described as someone who's sprung from a race, a native race of kings and queens. And her mother has this majesty of form and this strong soul. And this is what Olivia has too. And so throughout the novel, even as she is being called all these negative terms because of the color of her skin, there's this nobility that we associate with her African heritage. So getting back to the initial premise of this novel, it kind of has all the makings of a reality TV show. But the dad being like, you have to marry this cousin if you want the money. It's like, thanks a lot, dad. What the heck is going on there in terms of why he would have done that? So in terms of the will, Olivia ostensibly has this position that her father is acting with the best of motives. It's quoted in the novel that his whole soul recoiled at the idea of leaving me in Jamaica, of uniting me to any of the planters there, for to them he knew that his money would be the only bait. So in one sense, Olivia is saying that my father is trying to secure my happiness. But in the other sense, there's this whole historical context that in Jamaica, a law was created in 1761 that limited the amount of money that Black mixed race people could inherit. And that limit was set at 2,000 pounds. And so that number is much less than the 60,000 pounds that Olivia is set to inherit. And then there's also this other dynamic going on because Olivia is born out of wedlock. What was happening in the period is that British relatives who could claim their legitimacy would initiate lawsuits in order to acquire those monies. And there's a really great book called Children of Uncertain Fortune by Daniel Lovesay, which actually deals with this history. And it's all about mixed-race Jamaicans in the period who are moving or who are sent to England. And it's this very dynamic history. And so if you are thinking about why is the father making this choice of writing the will this way, it might be because he's trying to avoid some suits that might come up from family members. And so if the money is staying in the family, he's kind of avoiding something like that happening. Got it. So they would be maybe potentially trying to delegitimize Olivia's stake. Yes, exactly. Okay. And we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but Olivia does give her father the benefit of the doubt. She really loves and admires her father. Um, so, okay, so we have this wacky will that you just explained to us, and that is such a great marriage plot device. Like Amy said, I think it would be great for a reality show. It's like so perfect. But also the pacing is really great in the novel, and there are these exciting twists. They're unexpected, and they're almost Dickensian in nature, the way people are connected and that sort of thing. So not only is this book really important for some of the reasons we're going to be discussing, but actually it's really enjoyable. And I think the best thing about it has got to be our heroine, Olivia. As you described her, she's beautiful, charming. She's an orphan. She's an heiress. She has this noble spirit you described, but she's also really adventurous and witty. So she's not like boring noble. She's really fun and smart noble. Her descriptions of the people she interacts with are highly entertaining, and she does not hold back. She returns, let's say, the male gaze and the white female gaze, and she writes about it all in these letters home to her beloved former governess, Mrs. Milbank. 
when she's dealing with her nemesis, Mrs. Merton, that you told us about earlier, it actually reminded me of Elizabeth Bennett going head to head with Caroline Bingley in the Netherfield Park drawing room. Only the stakes are much higher for Olivia. On the bitchy scale, Mrs. Merton really does rank right up there with Caroline Bingley and all of those Jane Austen. Oh, higher even, I think. Yeah. When I think about that moment in Pride and Prejudice with Caroline Bingley and Elizabeth Bennett, and Caroline is trying to draw the attention of Mr. Darcy. She's walking around the room trying to get him to look at her beautiful figure, but he's not interested at all. It does remind me of the woman of color because the woman of color is so much about the graceful way that Olivia is moving. And Mrs. Merton is not graceful at all. And so a lot of the story is about that contrast between that elegance that Olivia has, but how much of that elegance Mrs. Merton is lacking. And so one of the scenes that I want to look at is when Olivia is walking on the streets of Clifton, which is a suburb of Bristol, England. And there's an onlooker who sees her and is curious about who this, you know, woman could be. And so in the scene, Olivia is writing to Mrs. Milbank and she says, you have frequently remarked that I walk in a manner peculiar to myself. You have termed it majestic and graceful. I have been fearful that it carried something of a proud expression, but I believe it is very difficult to alter the natural gait, and I am too much above the common size with regard to height to walk like the generality of my sex. There must surely, however, be something very particular in my air, for I find I am an object of general curiosity, and many a gentleman follows to repass me and be mortified at his folly when he has caught a view of my mulatto countenance. I laugh at this and tell Mr. Merton to observe them while he most gallantly retains all the fine things that he hears or fancy he hears on my shape and person, and very injudiciously has retailed them before his daughter-in-law, whose form being anything but elegant or graceful, you may conceive that the old gentleman soon found out that he had been all in the wrong. So in this scene, when the onlooker sees that she is a mixed-race person, suddenly they're mortified, but her reaction is to laugh at this. And I love the fact that she redirects that gaze. And so now she is the one doing the looking, and we are focused on her reaction, which is laughter. And in that scene, we also see how Mrs. Merton is like, oh, father-in-law, Mr. Merton, you are so wrong if you think <laughs> Olivia's elegant. But in fact, it is Mrs. Merton who's lacking that elegance. It really shows how she's able to describe herself in these letters. It's very cleverly done because it would be hard to describe yourself so well in a letter and not come off as annoying. <laughs> but the writer really does a good job of showing Olivia's depth of personality in the way that she describes these scenes. And you get a real sense of who she is. And it's not annoying like, oh, God, she just thinks she's amazing. That's a good point, because she's writing to somebody who's known her all her life. So mm -hmm. to be able to work in a description of herself is interesting. And I think that epistolary style is so perfect, because maybe with the exception of if this was like a diary that you were reading, it's the only other way to get to see her kind of snarky thoughts about people. I mean, snarky is not the right word, because that makes her seem like she has ill will towards people. But she's cynical. She's funny. And the fact that she's confiding in this longtime trusted friend, you know, allows for her to open up a little bit and say what she's really thinking. Yes, exactly. She says, it's only to you, Mrs. Milbank, that I can tell these things that I talk in this way. So you're exactly right about that. 
Okay, so the plot revolves entirely around Olivia and her adventures, which isn't unusual, except for the major fact that, as we said, she's a racially conscious Black woman. It makes her a really unique character for a novel like this. So for contrast, can you give our listeners a little bit of an overview of how Black women and women of color were typically portrayed in 18th century fiction? So I'm going to answer this question in terms of the research that I work on the most, which is visual caricature. And so if you look at the prints from the period, you will see images of Black women that are so offensively stereotypical in terms of them being hypersexualized, in terms of them being depicted as grotesque bodies and being unfeminine. And so that is the imagery that and Olivia Fairfield would have seen in the print shop windows around her and the caricature albums that people might have been looking at and laughed at. That is the imagery all around her. What was it like being a Black woman in that period with all that kind of um, visual imagery and even worse images that they would see around them? And so it's this ongoing question, what were the lives like of Black women in the period? And It's really hard to know the answer to that question because even though there are some texts, like we have the poetry of Phyllis Wheatley, we have the slave narrative of Mary Prince, there's a lot that's been lost in the archives. And so scholars have done a lot of work trying to better understand and sort of fill in those blank spaces and give voice to those lives. And that's part of the work that I'm doing as well. And listeners, we want to highly recommend if you check out this book um, that you get the Broadview edition, which was edited by Lyndon J. Dominique, because not only does it have an excellent introduction, it includes excerpts from some of these other kinds of depictions of Black women in the time period. Yeah, shout out to Broadview. I I loved their edition of this. And I think it's also important to touch on Mansfield Park, too, because as we mentioned in our intro, it's famously a Regency novel that has a slavery subtext. And I remember when the movie came out in 1999, the adaptation, that slavery came up in regards to the film, too, which I believe attempted to bring out the subtext more fully um, in that adaptation. And I can't believe that was over 20 years ago. That's scary um, how long ago it was. (laughs) Um, Lee Michael, do you want to briefly talk a little bit about Mansfield Park and the current scholarly take on it? So scholars will often reference the work of Edward Said and his book, Culture and Imperialism, because he talks about um, the dead silence that Fanny Price experiences when she wants to hear Sir Thomas Bertram talk about the slave trade. And one could interpret her interest in this That if you think of the novel as taking place around the time of the abolition of the Slave Trade Act, that she wants to hear about the campaigns to abolish the slave trade. But the um, film has this other kind of interpretation going on that's important to keep in mind, which is how much Sir Thomas Bertram is potentially implicated in the violence and horrors of slavery on the plantation in Antigua. And so that is another aspect that scholars explore. There's also the aspect of the name Mansfield. People will often connect to the first Earl of Mansfield, who was the chief Lord Justice in the period, who is known for the Mansfield decision of 1772, which is also called the Somerset case. So there was a Black man who sued for his freedom. And in that decision, 
it was stated that slavery didn't exist in England. And so if, for example, you have someone like Somerset, who was enslaved in North America, and then is brought over to England, he technically should no longer be a slave. Of course, it's kind of like a limbo status in some ways, because there still could be some people who are experiencing forms of slavery. But technically, slavery doesn't exist in England, according to that Mansfield decision. And so that's one way some people think about the novel in relationship to that case. And we know that Jane Austen was someone who read an abolitionist writer like Thomas Clarkson. But the thing that interests me is that a lot of the scholarship has focused on Sir Thomas Bertram. And I think what the woman of color does, it makes us also think of the white women characters. So when I think of Lady Bertram, I often think of Mrs. Merton because I think of Lady Bertram as this woman who's always like lounging on sofas and she's got this thing for a small dog and a similar thing is happening with Mrs. Merton. And so the woman of color makes us not just think about the white male plantation owner, but also the white women who are also implicated in the slave trade, in slavery. And so it seems like with Mansfield Park, the criticism from Edward Said, as you mentioned, is that she was too subtle with it. She didn't say enough about it, as opposed to a woman of color, which really takes a firm stance. Yeah, there is that huge difference, like the dead silence, like the characters aren't talking about it. There's just a few lines and there's different ways that we can read that silence. But you're right. Olivia is completely explicit. She brings it up. She talks about it. She wants emancipation. So there's the opposite of a dead silence happening. But then there's also some other dynamics going on as well in terms of the plantation and the way the plantation is viewed. So that's another aspect as well. So we see this tension based on the fact that she's traveling to England, which she thinks, okay, they've abolished the slave trade. This is going to be an enlightened society. Of course, that's not going to be the case. She's proven wrong as soon as she sets foot in England. What exactly was she walking into in Britain? Um, what was going on in England at the time as far as these dueling projects of abolition and then, you know, the British Empire? So the first thing I want to say in response to that question about abolition and empire is that it's helpful to think about the way that people understand race in the period is changing. So scholars like Roxanne Wheeler have written about how in the earlier part of the 1700s, there was a less fixed idea about race. And so in terms of categories of difference, people may have been more concerned with the way a person dressed or the way a person spoke or their religion. And so in the novel, we see lots of information about the elegant deportment of Olivia. We know that she is very strong in her faith and her Christian religion and she also speaks very well. She's often citing Shakespeare. And so those are the categories of difference that she wants to emphasize instead of increasingly stereotypical ways of thinking about race. And so Olivia is trying to resist this. The other dynamic that's going on is that even though the slave trade is abolished in 1807, slavery is still existing in the British colonies. And it's going to keep on existing until the 1830s. And so for some, what they want to see is slavery to continue, but the situation to be ameliorated for the experiences of the enslaved people to be made 
better in some way. And when scholars look at the woman of color, there's this kind of tension because there's some extent to which it seems like Olivia is someone who's promoting the idea of amelioration, that she wants the plantation lifestyle to continue and she wants to ameliorate the condition of the, quote, poor Blacks. The other element that's going on in terms of empire is that throughout the novel, you see how much Olivia reinforces the idea that she is British, that she represents an ideal British femininity. And that is also an important concept because in this period with the different British colonies, whether we're talking about the West Indies, whether we're talking about the East Indies, you have this concern that certain figures, like in the novel, we have these nabobs from the uh, East Indies, from Bengal, and they are white Britons, but they've been in the East Indies so long, according to the novel, that they've come back with these lifestyles that are not British. And Olivia is kind of a contrast to that. So you have that kind of idea of like, what is Britishness when Britain has this empire? And that's another thing that's going on in the novel. So when we talk about Olivia being racially conscious, she's constantly challenging anti-Black stereotypes. And she uses a lot of humor to do this. And I would also say a lot of patience. In other words, they go low and she's going high throughout the book. Um, for example, there's a scene where Mrs. Merton's young son, George, calls Olivia's maid Dido dirty because of her skin color. And Olivia is able to change his mind. And meanwhile, she's also capturing the admiration of Augustus Merton, who's witnessing all of this. And she's pissing off Mrs. Merton, too. But there's actually something bigger going on there, right? Yes. So there's this idea about the commonality of all people, that we're all God's children. And you see that in that scene where she's interacting with little George. But what I also find interesting is that even though this kind of way of looking at an enslaved Black person as the one who's trying to plead for this commonality, and I think of that Wedgwood medallion, the one where you have the enslaved African on his knees where he's saying, am I not a man and a brother? This idea of like, please see me in a certain way as in connection with you. That's like a mode that's very familiar. But Olivia also uses this other mode of that gaze that she's turning, that way that she looks at other people and saying, I'm not on my knees. I'm actually risen high above and I am elegant and you need to recognize <laughs> this. And so I love it. It's, it's not just that, that mode of pleading, but it's a, also another kind of way of resisting racism that's happening in the book. So let's talk about Olivia as a feminist for a little bit. Without giving away too much as far as the plot, she does point out the inequalities for all women of the time, not just Black women. And she has to live by these inequalities as well. It's still the Regency era, of course. So she has these independent goals she wants to pursue, and she insists on staying true to them no matter the cost. She's really strong in that way. And I'm thinking of Austin characters like Elizabeth Bennett and Fanny Price, for example. They also show this level of self-determination. And that's part of what makes them so interesting to the reader. But because Olivia is a Black woman, she's more vulnerable to the attacks on her character. The stakes, are, as I said earlier, are much higher for her. That's definitely true. But at the same time, there's romance in this book. She's girly. She falls for this guy that she's supposed to marry. She gets to know him. And it's kind of a sweet love story, I think. Um, and you see her vulnerability. But let's um, jump back to talking about 
Olivia's Black female servant, Dido. She does have a discussion with this little kid, George, who calls her dirty, and she kind of sits him down on her lap and explains why he shouldn't think that way. But there is something about Dido that I found a little bit concerning as I was reading the book. I wasn't sure how to feel about the depiction of this character. Lee Michael, talk us through it. How do you solve a problem like Dido? Because Dido is represented in a way that is highly stereotypical. She has a representation that's reminiscent of the grateful slave trope. So she's grateful to Olivia. She's loyal to Olivia, faithful to Olivia. And then there's these really offensive descriptions of Dido. She's described as having thick lips, which is a completely stereotypical description. And then also there's this patois that she speaks in that really contrasts her with Olivia. And so there's this tension that many readers find in the novel that it does make them uncomfortable in that on the one hand you have Olivia who's speaking against racism, but then what's going on with Dido? Is there some kind of colorism going on? What is happening in that relationship? And I think that there's many really helpful things written about this. And I want to mention Olivia Carpenter's article that she's written for studies in 18th century culture that talks about this desire we have for Olivia to be this representation of this empowered Black womanhood. Yet at the same time, this desire cannot be fulfilled because of the way we see her in relationship to Dido and the way that even Dido has this nostalgic way of talking about the plantation life and her dear Missy Olivia is the author of The Woman of Color trying to respond to a white audience who expects this kind of trope? Because one of the reviews, the contemporary reviews, talked about how Dido was the most natural character. And so if you think Dido is the most natural character, it means that you have this expectation that Black people are supposed to be these grateful, loyal, dutiful, subservient figures. And so what is happening with Dido? It's a really good question. It's like you see that trope going forward until very recently <laughs> in films and books. Um, so it's it's a it's sadly a long lasting <laughs> trope. Yeah. And since you mentioned the author and what their intention was, let's talk about who this author could be. I mean, what, if anything, do scholars know or, you know, what can we speculate? So we don't know anything for certain about the authorship. The title page says, oh, The Woman of Color by the author of all these other novels, but it seems like that was more a marketing tactic. And so we're not sure. Lyndon Dominique suggests in the introduction to the Broadview edition that perhaps it was a woman of color and perhaps it was a woman named Anne Wright because there was a will that her father created that has some similarities to the will that we see in the story, but Right now, we don't know for certain, though maybe with all the scholarship that is growing around the woman of color, maybe we will eventually find out who the author was. Oh, I'd love to know. <laughs> sure, many people would love to know. I mean, conceivably, it could have been written by a man, right? Because we have no idea. 
we don't know. There are certain things that make you think, oh, maybe it's someone who does have this understanding because there's this moment which maybe you notice where there's kind of an early 19th century version of a microaggression where there's a character who says, oh, she's actually beautiful. And I didn't think she could be for someone of that color. Um, you know, like that idea, oh, she's beautiful for a black girl. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So <laughs> that kind of microaggression is something where you feel like a certain kind of sensibility would be recognizing that. But we don't know for sure. Granted, that's I'm not a specialist in that area, but I can't think of anything that a man wrote that was anything like this. So I, I want to believe it's a woman and I want to believe that a Black woman wrote it. But, <laughs> I know. mean, yeah, I, I have a moment of pause, like Lost Ladies of Lit. Wait a second. This could potentially not be a woman. But, it's, but it just feels so strongly that it is. I know. Like, it feels so strongly from a woman's point of view. But then I think of like Samuel Richardson, I'm reading Clarissa, and I feel like, wow, he really gets into the mind of this girl, you know? So who knows? But like you said, it would be awesome if somehow this was figured out. Unless they figure out a man wrote it. In that case, keep it quiet. <laughs> yeah. The desire, all this desire we have. Oh. Yeah, I know. We're putting so much on it. Yeah, totally. Um. Okay, so as we said in the intro, The Woman of Color was reviewed in leading publications of the time, and it seems like it was widely read, too, because it appears in the catalogs of a lot of circulating and subscription libraries. Why do you think it disappeared for a couple hundred years, and how did it come to be rediscovered? So in terms of its disappearance, there's so many novels that we don't know about. And that's why your podcast is so wonderful, Lost Ladies of Lit. Um, and so in terms of its rediscovery, Lyndon Dominique's Broadview edition is a very important part of that. In 2008, his edition came out. And so then it gave this opportunity for professors to start teaching and assigning the book, making it more accessible to do that. And then also there's this growing scholarship, as I was mentioning before, about more people looking at the archives. And I want to highlight a book called Wicked Flesh by Jessica Marie Johnson. It's a great book. And it's one of those books that really delves into the archives of this period. And then also, there is, you know, TV shows, movies, Bell came out in 2013 about the life of Dido Elizabeth Bell and of course Saniton and Bridgerton. And so hopefully it's getting people to want to know more about the real historical figures from the period. And then also learn more about literature like the women of color. All right. So that is a great segue into talking about how we're basically having this renaissance of Regency era inspired TV and film. You mentioned Sanditon and Bridgerton. Sanditon is the Andrew Davies series for PBS and uh, Bridgerton is a Shondaland production and they both feature multiracial casts. Bridgerton is based on a series of best-selling romance novels by Julia Quinn. And unlike the book series, actually, the TV show features diverse nobility. And that's in a time when, with a few exceptions, the actual nobility were white colonizers. It's historically inaccurate, but that's on purpose. How do you think the scholarship around the woman of color may have informed the work of Shonda Rhimes and others? So I am thinking about that question more and more. And what I'm hoping is that we will see more real historical figures in shows like Bridgerton. So we've got some figures like the black boxer, Will Monrich, is um, perhaps 
based on Bill Richmond, a black boxer from that period. And you might know that boxing was in the Regency period, this uh, sport that, you know, the elite men and people like the Prince Regent were interested in. And so that is something that you can look at the history books and you can look at these figures. But I am kind of hoping that they will turn to other figures. For example, one person, Dorothy Kerwin Thomas, who is the subject of a recent novel by Vanessa Riley, is an amazing figure in this history. And so she was someone who was enslaved on a Caribbean island, born enslaved, and then she rises to great wealth. She purchases her freedom and the freedom of her um, family members, and she spends a bit of time in London. And so she's definitely a great figure that could appear in Bridgerton. So hopefully we'll see more of that because one of the things that Bridgerton does, and I'm a fan of it, I love the show, but I'm also this critic. And because I'm a scholar of the period, there's these moments where I experience this great disconnect. So in the second season, they included the figure George Cruikshank, who is known for his caricatures. He also did later in the 1800s caricatures for Dickens. And when I think of Cruikshank, In my mind, I think of him as someone who's also known for these horribly racist caricatures of Black women's bodies. And so he creates this kind of disconnect when you're watching this show of this racially egalitarian London and you have this figure of Cruikshank. So on the one hand, it's creating this disconnect, but it also opens up these imaginative possibilities. And so I hope that it'll just explore the stories and lives of Black people in um, exciting ways that more clearly connect them to the historical figures. With Sanditon, it's a little bit more historically accurate because the character of Georgiana Lamb in the TV show is based on Miss Lamb in Austen's unfinished novel. And so you have a similar thing going on, like in The Woman of Color, where you have a Black mixed-race woman, an heiress. In this case, in Sanditon, she's coming from Antigua, who comes over to England. And there's this plot line in the um, second season of Sanditon where they're doing a sugar boycott, which is reflective of the history, but it's really um, different in that you have a Black woman, Georgina Lamb, taking the leadership role in that sugar boycott. So ultimately, what I'm hoping is that these TV shows will just want us to look more at that real history, at what is actually historically accurate. Yeah, that's a great point that there is so much that you can mine, you know? Yeah. And I actually wanted to mention this really great connection that, you know, Lady Danbury, who's played by Adwa Ando in the show, she's the narrator of the audiobook for Island Queen, that Vanessa Riley novel that's about Dorothy Kerwin Thomas. So there's already a connection going on. They just need to bring it out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's so cool. It's funny. I didn't know that Bridgerton, that they had um, completely changed the makeup of the people that were in. I thought, I didn't know that it was an all white book. I never had read it until... I was researching for this episode. So it's interesting that she's doing something different with it. Yeah, I I love that aspect of it because now when I read the Julia Quinn novels, um, I have certain views of the Duke of Hastings. I have an image in my mind. <laughs> um, I have Lady Danbury in my mind. Okay. It's so exciting to hear their voices when I'm like reading the Julia Quinn novels. Did you read them before or only? No, after? I didn't. And so that's okay. what I mean. Like I came to them um, with that kind of sensibility, which made it kind of a joy that I didn't, you know, I might have experienced the novels very differently if I hadn't read them after watching the Shondaland Bridgerton. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. So we wanted to know if you had any other recommendations on books or stories from the 18th century, particularly if there are any other works about women of color. So 
I want to actually recommend two books that weren't written in the 18th century, but they are about the lives of Black people in the 18th and early 19th century. So I want to recommend Gretchen Gerzina's book, Black England. A revised edition of it has just come out and it's got a foreword by Sadie Smith. And it's a great book. It's wonderfully written. And it just gives you this overview of the many different lives that Black people had in that period. And so there's estimates that, you know, approximately 15,000 Black people were in London, in England in that period. And many of them were servants. But then, of course, there were people who did have associations with the elite like Dido Elizabeth Bell. And so that book is really great to give you a sense of the types of society that Black people might have moved in. And then the other book I want to recommend is a favorite. It is Andrea Levy's The Long Song. And this is a beautiful novel, and it's been adapted into a PBS adaptation to a series. And it's about an enslaved Black woman in Jamaica in that period before emancipation and after emancipation. And as I mentioned before, sometimes it's so hard to find the voices of enslaved Black women. And so what Andrea Levy does is she imagines that voice and the character of Miss July. And she's also one of those like funny, witty characters. Um, and it's just a pure pleasure or joy to read that story. So I highly recommend The Long Song. Was that on PBS in like the last two or yeah, three so years? Yeah, so it's been like recently the last couple of years. It was on. I didn't watch it, but I remember seeing the ads for it and everything and being like, oh, there's another masterpiece I need to check out. So yes, check it out. Because it is really interesting watching Sanditon. And I, I do feel like it's filling in the gaps in terms of just informing me. Um, yeah, and I think that's what scholarship is doing now. And in my field, in 18th century studies, we talk about the global 18th century. And so more and more scholars, um, a lot of great work is being done looking at, you know, Jamaica, Antigua, other islands, also looking at India. And so hopefully all of us will start to learn more. Yeah. yeah. And you don't have to answer this if you're not ready, but is there anything you want to say about your book project? So I will say about my book project that it's just a pure pleasure and joy because one, I get to read these Regency romances, which are fun. Um, so like we already mentioned Julia Quinn, Vanessa Riley, who's another historical fiction writer. And then I get to um, look at works like Beverly Jenkins, who is considered like, you know, um, great African-American romance novelist. And then I get to pair them with the literature of the 18th century, early 19th century. And so for me, it's exciting because, you know, the romance novels have all this fantasy elements in them, but then you could still see some kinds of connections, like with the woman of color, as you were mentioning, um, Amy, with the romance plot and things. And so it's a lot of joy doing this research. And so I'm very excited about this project. We're going to keep an eye out for your book. Definitely let us know. Thank you so much. It was really great to have you on the show to talk us through all of this. Um, so fun getting to know you. Thanks for taking the time with us today. Thank you so much. I had a wonderful time with the both of you. Thank you. We loved having you. A great conversation. Well, that's another episode in the books. I'm still pinching myself that we get to discuss lost classics like the one today with people like Lee Michael. If you're loving the show, we'd love it if you could give us a rating wherever you listen. It's the best way to help new listeners discover us. Our theme song was written and performed by Jenny Malone, and our logo was designed by Harriet Grant. Lost Ladies of Lit was produced by Kim Askew and Amy Helms.